This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. I think some of you may be sick of hearing about Radiothon, but this is the Beyond Zero Emissions Radiothon evening, and I hope we have lots of calls from listeners, especially because we need a bit of a cheer-up about uh, working so hard for climate change to slow it down. If you would like to speak on the air to say what you like about 3CR or what you, you're doing about climate action, please call in on 3 94198377. If you don't want to speak on air but can make a donation right now, please phone 94198377. We are grateful to 3CR for supporting Beyond Zero Emissions Project and for supporting us personally. I was recently in East Timor and I was recording interviews for a future show and I had a terrific technical help from Michael here at 3CR plus contacts in Timor from other 3CR people who you know had trained radio presenters up in Timor so 3CR does a lot of outreach and there were these people in remote parts of Timor saying oh we were trained by uh, you know Elena McMaster and she gave us our training and so on so I think we are you know really a marvelous station I hope you will uh, donate to the Beyond Zero Emissions part of the Radiothon. And I'll just jump in there, Viv, and um, remind everyone, or if they if they already know, that one hour of radio costs ninety dollars to make here at Three CR. And aside from our wonderful show, there's lots of other really fantastic shows on Three CR uh, to make sure you keep us on air. Okay, well tonight we're just going to have some short interviews of our previous shows. I think they're the best of them, and. Um, a theme arises about health, really, because we're fighting to stop the worst of climate change, to slow it down, because it's going to have a terrible effect on uh, people's health in the first place, and eventually it'll be annihilation if it goes on the way it's going. So the first person we're going to talk to um, is Adrian Baragaba from the Galilee Basin, and he's talking about why he doesn't want the Adani coal mine to go ahead. Um, just before we start, please write down the telephone number. It's 94198377. So let's listen to Adrian Baragaba, and then while you're listening to him, get some, get yourself ready to phone up, and I hope you'll phone in a donation after that. Thanks. Tonight we're going to central Queensland. Adrian Baragaba is a proud traditional owner of Wangan and Jagalingu country. You might know this area better as the Galilee Basin. 
But the Indian company Adani wants to build one of the biggest coal mines in the world there. So Adrian is standing up and he against this and he's inviting you to join uh, in a protest against this. So welcome, Adrian. Hello. Adrian, could you just tell us what is the legal action that Adani have taken against your people? The legal action is a process that they use through the native title legislation. It's um, a process where they consult the traditional owners on the land and uh, ask them to do a land use agreement. Well, the Wangan Jagalingu people have rejected a land use agreement and we haven't consented to the Carmichael mine. We've never at any point signed or, or agreed to any money. And through that, that process, we then had to prove our spiritual and religious and ceremonial and ritualistic uh, connection to the land quite under the under that act to show that there was some disturbance to our Aboriginal law and custom. And so that's how that process works. Would you just describe the land to us? Because, uh, you know, it's central Queensland. A lot of people, especially in Melbourne, won't have ever been there. And Yeah. Well, from around uh, Claremont area out to the Great Dividing Range, it's, it's pretty much sort of um, flat, arid land. Mm. There's a lot, of, a lot of trees. As you get closer to where the Carmichael is, you cross the Baliando River coming from the, the coast, from Claremont mm. direction, and then um, as you draw closer to the Great Dividing Range, the, the landscapes begin to change. Mm. So as you come closer to the Carmichael River, which the Carmichael River actually runs straight across the Carmichael Mine, which is the, the Adani Mine mm. site. Mm. And as, as you go further towards the range, you come to a, a number of springs, they're natural springs, about 10 natural springs. One of them is uh, the, it's called the Dungabula, Dungabula Springs. These springs are vital to the whole area and it, and it feeds the area with water continually, 24-7, mm. all year round. And it's, it's like oasis in the middle of central Queensland. And either, when I say oasis, there are also palm trees there. That, and the waxy cabbage palm is a, a tree that grows along the Carmichael River and they can only be found there and nowhere else in the world. There are species of animals and, and plant life that can be found only there and nowhere else in the world. And this mine will damage and fracture the ecosystem beyond anything imaginable. And all of those endangered species like the black-throated finch and even, the, even those trees, they will, they will be existent. Just like our law and custom and our culture, it will it will be gone forever. It will die. So if you if you want a, a picture of it, it's a it's a picture of beautiful uh, um, springs mm. and, and like you have like like big billabongs that mm. like you know are teeming with life. And yeah. to us, it's our creation. It's our beginning. Where the Wanga the Jagalingu people yeah. well, came you... from. You said in the um, article I read that it would be annihilation for you, you know, for your people. I'm really, I'm really concerned about the future of the Wangan-Jagalingu people. I'm concerned that our people are coming from trauma, traumatisation of colonisation and yeah. separation from their land. You know, it forces our people to, to carry all of this uh, suffering. And it's, it's suffering that will go on into the future because when our people are dispossessed and displaced from their land, they, they have all the manner of problems. You know, we can't refer back to our law. We can't refer back, you know, our, our beginnings and, and, and we can't teach our children about their identity. And these things are very important to us. It's yeah. essential to the, to, the, to the well-being of Aboriginal people that, that we, can, we can reconnect with their land 
and we can be grounded to the place of yeah. where our ancestors are. So these are very important. And if, if, if this mind goes ahead, it will take a big chunk out of our life yeah. and essentially will dis destroy uh, our heritage forever. All your reference points will be gone. Exactly. Well, you know, Aboriginal people refer to the land in that sense where it's unspoiled and untouched as our place of beginning. Yeah. Like people, like the Christian would refer to the Bible. They, they could That's look right. back to, you know, what, uh, you know, the the Ten Commandments and, yeah. and the laws, and we find that in the land. It's really important for us that that's, we, we yeah. can't surrender that. Well, that's the best expression of that I've heard from you just then because I, I, I think a lot of people in the cities are just not sensitive to it because they haven't seen the land and also they don't know enough Aboriginal people to tell it to them like that. They don't get it. Anyway, but we're not the ones stopping it. It's these um, mines yeah. and the Queensland government. There's pure politics and big money involved. So you're at the pointy end of all this, but... I think there's a global necessity for the coal mm. to stay in the ground as well. Mm. Do you think that, you know, all these international banks have been ruling out funding recently, four French banks the other day, and all these top banks have said, no, they won't fund this and they won't fund the Abbott Point, you know, terminal there because climate change laws are going to eventually kick in and, and make this a stranded asset. Could you talk a bit about that, you know, that bigger climate change aspect of preserving this land? Because you sound like the people who are standing up on the spot, but there's a lot of people on the coast and in the cities who understand all this from the climate change perspective who will support you? Well, it, it, it is something that we're really concerned about. And we do, have, uh, we do have a lot of supporters out there and we're very grateful for that. And uh, people, uh, because we have a vision that's been going for a while, you can find that through our website. But uh, in saying that, we've received a lot of information from environmental groups, you know, the impact that this mine will have upon the water because they will use billions of litres of water and that essentially will dry, dry the land up. It could potentially turn it into an inland desert. I mean, this, this is a mine that's uh, projected, you know, to, to run for about 50 years. And then they will also have a, a coal-fired coal station burning the coal out there in central Queensland. This will have some effect, once again, upon the plant life and nature in general. Well, they're planning uh, a, a new coal-fired coal power station up there. This was this was not also authorised, and and we weren't informed about it until mm. only a, a couple of months ago. It's just yeah, ridiculous. So this, there should be no new coal mining and no new fire-powered stations. Yeah. You know, like it's just too late in history for this. This is you know the the Antarctic's falling. You know, the Antarctic shelves falling off. Yeah. The Arctic's melting. We're all going to be paying. Australia's already got a lowered rainfall because of it, more bushfires yeah. and everything. We we know about it. Like I think that the the mixture of your local loss and mm. our global loss, I think those two things have to be made joined together. I think it's a much more persuasive case to the court if you if you bring in. Well, see, so this will have an effect upon the Great Barrier Reef because the Carmichael River runs into the Ballyanda River, essentially runs into the Burdekin River, then out to the Great Great Barrier. Yep. And and uh, the runoff from that will be massive, you know, because of the what happens to the water once it once it goes through the mines, it becomes contaminated. If you yeah. if you look inside the mines, fly over, you can see the colour of the water that's in there. It's like a it's an awful colour. Well, that's that's like a, it's a it's a highly toxic mm. waste that they've been washing the coal with. You know, it become, it's worse than us. This then is washed down through the rivers and through the waterways and through the aquifers. And out into the Great the Great Barrier Reef, yeah. and then it just it then it poisons the whole 
atmosphere as mm. well. Oh, it's, the environment just... Because it's so fragile now, yeah. it would just um, damage it beyond repair. That's right. It's so fragile and this is so massive. You know, this is, as you said, one of the biggest coal mines in the world if it goes ahead. But let's not... We have just absolutely... It can't really go ahead... So that was Adrian Burrogaba, who kindly spoke to us from Galilee Basin. And since that story, listeners, he has gone to Europe with a little delegation of people to speak to European banks, you know, to stop bankrolling this Adani coal mine proposal. And there are some French banks who've already pulled out. And, you know, we should really get behind this. It's a really big story. And uh, meanwhile, you know, Adani's an Indian company. Meanwhile, India has really been feeling the worst of the heat waves. Um, Heatwaves in Australia kill people who are vulnerable, but in India there are people who, who are living in grass huts, little farms with no trees, sometimes certainly no air conditioners and fans, sometimes no access to water. And recently in Hyderabad, the news was in the paper, something like 2,000 people have died just of heatwave. So these conditions are exacerbated by um, carbon, burning carbon. They might be... You might people might still say to you, "Oh, we've always had heat waves. We've always had bushfires. We've always had these things." But the thing of the uh, greenhouse effect is that they are all intensified by the burning carbon. So we must connect the dots and must stop it. Anyway, thank you for listening tonight. This is our Radiothon show. Um, Jane, you wanted to say something about um, our recent shows. We've got we've received five hundred and eight dollars so far. That's right. Um, that makes it at about a third of what we need to get to reach our target, okay. Vivian. So we're on our way, but we need to push a little bit more. Perhaps we could thank some of the people. Um, I've got a list in front of me of people who've already made donations. Uh, we had a collection at a BZE discussion night, and. Uh, $118 came from that. Um, a person called Michael sent us $20. Sonia sent us $100. Greg sent us 60 Susan sent us 60 Spiros sent us $50. And Stephen is giving us $100. And I think we might have someone now on the phone to uh, phone in some comments and give us a donation. Can we go over to that call? Yes, we do. Apparently I hear from Annie that we've got Hal on the line. Are you there, Hal? Yep. Hello. Hey, you, Hi. How, where, where are you calling from, Hal? Uh, Melbourne. From Melbourne. What part of Melbourne? Williamstown. Right. And you sound like you might be one of our younger listeners, Hal. How old are you? I am 10 turning 11. Goodness me. And have you have you rung up to make a donation to us tonight? Yes, $20. Oh. Well, that is fantastic. That's, That's fantastic. Very, Thank you, Hal. Very heartwarming. And it's very heartwarming to hear that... Uh, we have a wide range of listeners, Vivian. <laughs> That's really good. No, thank you, Hal. Do you have any opinions about climate change at the moment? Um, I'm really enjoying listening to this radio show. I've oh, been yeah. studying at school yeah. climate change and I was forever looking on the wiki and <laughs> uh, websites and then yeah. I found this and I it's a really good um, radio station. I want to support it. Super. Thank you very much. We should have more uh, young people presenting on this program. We must think about that. But thanks very much for making your donation. You're welcome. Okay, thank you. Thanks, okay, well, Hel that's really good. That was Hell from Williamstown. Okay. Keep those calls coming. That's it? really good. And it's really nice to hear that people are actually getting something out of our show. I know they do. Um, Jane, from the podcast, we have a lot of people listen to the podcast and, and it's That's very true. instructive. Our next in interview is with um, someone we spoke to about coal and health. His name is Associate Professor Peter Sainsbury. 
He's in public health at Sydney University and I asked him to play a little game with me about the effects of coal on a boy's health. I gave him an imaginary boy and said over his lifetime, what would be the effect of living near these uh, coal mines? As you're a, a professor of public health, I thought you might like to have play a little game with me. I'm going to uh, tell you like a little invented story of someone who I can imagine would live in the Hunter Valley. And would you just tell me the medical outcome you could predict for them living in this area? Oh, my um, goodness. <laughs> it's just to bring it to life and make it like a story. Uh, let's say the boy's name is Kevin. He goes to Metford Primary School and the long coal wagons pass by his school every day. His dad died last year in a mining accident. There really was a mining accident where someone from Metford died. And his mum works down at the Port Waratah coal um, shipping port. So can you tell me if he grew to the sort of age of the four, his 40s or 50s staying in this environment, what kind of health outcomes might he be expect, expected to have? Um, well, I think the first thing that struck me from uh, Kevin's story, you know, he's at primary school, so let's say he's about eight years old or something. I mean, firstly, he's had this terrible event in his life of his father, first of all, dying, and secondly, dying in a mining accident. Um, now, as, a, as I've said in one or two talks I've given, my grandfather was a miner in England for about 50 or 60 years, actually working at the coalface. And back in the... 50s, then coal mining was still quite a dangerous occupation with with roof falls and blasts and, and uh, explosions and so on, and just machine accidents. But mining's become a lot safer, and so we don't hear as much about that. But the fact is, it's still quite a dangerous occupation, and people do still get injured permanently on occasions and killed, as Kevin's dad did. So, so he's lost his dad, and he's lost his dad to an industrial accident. And basically, they should be preventable. So he, you know, he's eight years old, and this is terrible things happen to him. And on top of that, then it's quite possible that when he's at school, if he lives near the railway line or near the road as well, then it's quite possible that the dust from the railway line, where the, the uncovered wagons that are carrying the coal to to Newcastle every day, the dust blowing off them, the coal dust, the, the dust blowing off the uh, heaps around the coal mines, it's quite possible that he's already got some respiratory trouble. Um, if he's prone to asthma, it may be making him worse, but it may indeed be giving him uh, respiratory infections, uh, nose, uh, upper respiratory infections and so on. So it's affecting his health now, never mind when he gets to 40 years of age. But if he, if he uh, carries on living in the area, then uh, and let's say he gets a job not in mining, just say he works, becomes a school teacher in the local school or something, um, he's still going to be exposed to all those dusts. And it's quite likely with the very, very fine dusts that they'll go into his lungs and then they get absorbed into his bloodstream, just like the oxygen that gets absorbed into our bloodstream. And then that causes more respiratory problems, bronchitis, asthma, and it also causes heart attacks and it causes cancer. So he's got problems now and if he stays in the area, even if he doesn't go into mining, he's likely to have respiratory problems, heart problems and possibly cancer when he yes. gets older. Right, thank you. That's brought it to life beautifully. So that was Peter Sainsbury. 
Uh, welcome back, listeners. If you're listening now, uh, just turning in, tuning in, it's the Beyond Zero Emissions Radiothon, Sean. Beyond, show, Beyond Zero Emissions is a think tank that tries to fast forward the reaction to climate emergency by slowing down climate change through renewable energy and lots of things like that. And one of the things is to keep the coal in the ground. So Professor Sainsbury's told us why we shouldn't uh, be digging up any more coal and certainly not burning it. But we've got $508 last, we had 20 there, so before that, so 520 So please phone in, listeners. We'd love to hear what you have to say about climate change or about community radio. Really small donations, $10, $5, we don't care. It all adds up. Yep. Jane? Yes, and we've we've had uh, we've set the bar fairly high. We've had a ten-year-old phone in and pledged twenty dollars. So it's just so important to keep community radio on the air. And I'm sure I'm preaching to the converted out there, to the listeners who are out there currently. Um, mainstream media just does not give the give a voice to anything other than uh, you know. Quite often, it seems big business and vested interests, their own vested interests. So this opportunity for a whole host of uh, uh, can I call them minority voices to be put to air every week is just it's it's unique. And three CR has been going for forty years now, so it's uh, people like you who have kept us on air. I think we've got another phone and, call. And uh, the phone number, of course, is nine four one nine eight three double seven. So, pick pick that phone up and call in. Just make a and donation, actually, or you can come through to the studio. We can pass your voice. Just so I'd like to speak on air, and you can make a comment about. That's right. And climate Vivian, change. Apparently, we've got Steve online too. Okay. Hello, Hello. Steve. Are you there? Hi. Hi. Yes. What would you I like to say? In. Um, well, I've already made a pledge, but um, uh, how much I was it? Like it was hundred. Oh, that's very you, good of you. you. Thank you. You read it out on air. Yeah, yes. thank you. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that uh, Adrian Baragava uh, interview. That's, that's very rarely you get to hear, you know, a traditional um, landowner speaking on on the uh, on air mm. about somewhere that, where there's going to be mining. So yeah, well done. Thanks very much. And someone told me that there'll be something on East Timor coming up. Yes, next the next two weeks' programs are going to be about East Timor. We're going to talk about land use, uh, permaculture, all these things, reforestation in Timor. So I think listeners will be, you know, you won't get this on mainstream radio because everyone's forgotten about Timor, but mm. we will be bringing you very fresh shows about that next week and the following week. Oh, that'll be very good. I look forward to that. Mm. Okay. Well, thank okay. you, Stephen. Well thank- done. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks very thank much. You. Keep Bye-bye. listening. Keep listening. <laughs> Yes, so 3CR puts 132 programs to air every week, Vivian. I mean, that's just extraordinary when you Mm -hmm. think about it. Month in, month out, year in, year out. Uh, We particularly would love to see your donations for Beyond Zero Emissions, but any donation to 3CR would be most welcome. The number is, of course, 94198377. That's Melbourne 94198377. Or you can uh, go to 3cr.org.au and uh, donate online. So please, listeners, it's the one time of year that we put our our begging caps out and and go out there and and ask for your money and uh, as well as your, your support in listening. So yeah. what else have we I got? I think another thing I'd like to say, uh, Stephen mentioned Timor. We, um, Timor became independent, but for many years there was a Timor program on this radio. 
and it was when Timor was occupied by Indonesia and they just called it Timor Calling and it just broke that wall of silence that was around Timor. Mm. We've got West Papua Program. They are also trying to break through that wall of silence around West Papua. And I think climate change is a bit the same. There's a kind of wall of silence and denial around climate change. And by bringing you the voices of people who are taking action, these are not people who say, oh, what can you do? There's nothing you can do. It's all hopeless. We are not bringing you those people. We're bringing you the people who are activists and mm. campaigners in climate change who give you science, hope, you know, imagination. and I Solutions. Think, yeah, and solutions. Mm. So please donate to help us stay on air, help the station, you know, pay its bills. And I think we've got time for another interview. Can we go back to Peter Sainsbury? He had a little bit more to say and then we'll go on to another one. Um, if it's hard to stop the local impacts of coal, I think you're finding that it is hard to even cover the coal wagons. Um, how much harder is it to stop the international health impacts of our exported coal through climate change? Well, that's a much much bigger issue. You're right. Um, and I personally, I'm quite pessimistic that the international community is going to get its act together quickly enough to stop not just two degrees, but even three or four degrees of global warming by yeah. the end of this century. Yeah. That said, I'm probably a fraction more optimistic now than I was six or nine months ago. We have seen some movements, particularly by China and the USA and Europe, um, and certainly some international bodies, WHO, UN, World Bank, that have indicated that they do now fully understand the implications of the road we're on. Now, not the commitments that the countries have, have individually made don't add up to anywhere near enough to prevent two degrees of global warming this century. We're still very much on track to hit that. Um, but nonetheless, the, it does seem to me that the sorts of things that nations and, uh, and multinational bodies around the world are saying, it's much more towards reaching a, a realistic um, uh, solution in, in Paris at the end of this year than it was a year ago. I think what, what, what people in Australia, perhaps not your listeners actually, but people in Australia generally don't realise is that Australia is way out of line. Mm. The, 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 the discussion, the conversations, the reticence to take any action by government and let's be fair here, it's not only the Liberal government. The previous Labour government was, was not really doing that much. They mm -hmm. were aiming for 5% mm. reduction by 2020. So there's a general reticence by governments to take action. And, and the, the public discussion is way behind what it is in Europe and North America. And even what's coming out of, for instance, the, the Chinese government. Right. Well... You know, I appreciate what you say, and I'm glad you said it. It needs to be said really loudly. And wrote something in the big issue. His name is Greg Foister, and uh, he wrote an article about the influence of heat waves on vulnerable people. There was also another person with him called Maggie Barron, and she told a very personal story about how it had affected her sister. Um, her sister, in, in fact. Um, was a vulnerable person, was living in housing that wasn't really adequate for the heat wave and it was a Melbourne heat wave that just overwhelmed her sister and it's a very personal story. So uh, please ring in 9419 8377 
to help us make uh, $1,800 for the Beyond Zero Emissions part of Radiothon. But you are supporting community radio by making this din- this, uh, this d- uh, donation. Please call that number and um, give some money to Keep 3CR bringing you these sorts of stories. Can we hear Greg Foyster now? Just play uh, a quick grab on how it's tax deductible to All make right. a donation. Okay, good. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377. Greg, you describe people at a hot barbecue drinking diuretic beverages and pissing away every last drop of deference to the climate. Yes, so... I was looking at this study by Lucinda Coates, who's a professor at Macquarie University and has done a lot of research into natural disasters in Australia, particularly heat waves and how they cause more deaths than all the other natural disasters combined. And in in her her, uh, most recent study, which showed that uh, extreme heat has been responsible for more than 4,500 deaths in Australia since since 1900, she actually found that the, the day when more people died than any other day in the calendar year was Australia Day. <laughs> and the reason is, um, sorry, no, it was the, the, day, the day after Australia Day, January 27. And the reason is that heat waves often claim lives uh, after the heat has dissipated. And that's because people's, uh, you know, bodies break down and, and the full effect is felt afterwards. But on, on Australia Day, people are obviously getting pissed in the sun. And we, we really don't have enough deference to the climate in well, Australia. That made me think about the way the media behave. I don't think they're really very responsible because just around January we had an ambulance man. Do you remember, Jane, he came in here and he read out the list of ambulance cases they'd had in this heatwave and he said uh, one was an 80-year-old man who'd passed out on the golf course. Now, I think the media should have been telling a man to be like that. We sense, well, today is a really dangerous day for people, you know, don't go and do any big exertion like that. And I think the media um, just tell us a pretty story. What do you think? Well, we tend to get a mixed message about heat waves. So if you look at, for example, media coverage of cyclones or bushfires, the, the, the text will be saying this is a disaster and the photo will, that accompanies the, that message um, conveys the same attitude that this is something to be avoided. So you have uh, an image of a raging hot fire or uh, winds whipping through a town, devastating houses, destroying um, the environment. But if you see media articles on heat waves, you've often got the, the text telling people to be cautious and wary and then you've got this lovely photo of bikini-clad women splashing around water and having a good time. So it's, it's not exactly sending the same message. And the reason for that is that heat waves are largely uh, invisible natural disasters. It's very hard to depict a heat wave other than a little bit of melting asphalt, which isn't exactly a sexy media image. So they don't tend to... Uh, garner the same response from the media uh, and it, it's also really ha- hard to quantify how many people have died and the, in, in previous heat waves like for example in 1995 heat wave in Chicago there was a question around well is there an adequate way of measuring how many people have died obviously health researchers will say that there is it's excess deaths but a lot of people don't still buy that they don't really understand that heat waves tend to affect 
um, elderly, vulnerable people, and those deaths should still be counted. They, sh you know, there's a there's a spike in deaths that has to be quantified, and it's more difficult than seeing somebody, you know, burnt alive or destroyed by a, a cyclone. Well, we have Maggie here. I'm really grateful for her to come. Um, she. Uh is telling the story of her sister Katrina and it brings into close focus just how dangerous heat waves can be. I was even surprised how that story evolved. So would you, Maggie, Thanks, just Vivian. read the story. Thank you. Happy to share the story. On New Year's Day this year, I sat in my lounge room watching the weather report and my stomach clenched and my chest tightened. Predictions of 40 degree heat had a real visceral effect on me now because I know what can happen. My sister Katrina was a fun-loving and caring child a good student and physically active. She went to a well-regarded school in Melbourne's leafy eastern suburbs before her first job at a major hospital. In her 20s, she went to university and studied social work before working in the field, helping young people at risk. When she was 24, she suffered a mental breakdown and was hospitalised many times over the next few years. And this was really a most awful time for those who loved her. Having a sister with mental illness is hard, our older sister most eloquently described it as grieving the loss of the person you love every single time you see them. It took several years for her health to stabilise, but never to the point where she could work. During one hospital stay she met Christopher, they formed a strong and loving relationship that would last the rest of their lives. Chris and Katrina's paranoia made living in shared accommodation challenging. Katrina badgered the mental health support people and through them convinced the Department of Housing to provide them with a small house in Melbourne's north and there they built a stable home life. But because Katrina never shook the fear that they might be evicted at any time, she would never raise concerns about necessary repairs to the house. She ran the house and the budget and she and Chris were always well presented and clean. Chris had been a chef in his youth and they ate well. He did all the cooking because psychiatric medication caused my sister's hands to shake constantly. One Saturday in January last year, we went to the local park. I had a regular monthly visit with her and I noticed how slow she'd become and I suspected that the medication, which propped up her mental health, was also now sadly taking a physical toll. Her weight gain was obvious, but now her slow gait and tiredness were also visible and her feet were grossly swollen. Chris was always by her side. He too had gained a large amount of weight over the previous decade and had a nasty smoker's cough. The following week promised to be a scorcher, 40 degrees each day with a late change promised on the Friday night. I spoke to Katrina three times that week and our sister visited her on the Thursday night. She said Katrina appeared to be in good spirits, although she was clearly struggling with the high temperatures. Their small house had no air conditioning, just fans. One of Chris's brothers was an, is an electrician and he'd offered to install an air conditioner at no cost. But Katrina's anxiety about damaging the property and being evicted, plus concern about running costs, prevented her from accepting it. Anxiety is a really common problem with people who have a psychiatric disorder. Being a large person, she was unable to soak in a bath, but took many cold showers to try to keep cool. The side effects of her medication didn't help. Even in winter, she needed to drink two or more litres a day of water to stay hydrated. On Friday night, the cool change swept through. I called Katrina but got no answer. Assuming she and Chris were out the back enjoying some respite, I let them be for the evening and called again the following day but still got no answer. 
Katrina had a history of paranoia and perhaps she was cranky after the heat and it wasn't uncommon for her to take the phone off the hook for extended periods. I tried again on Sunday with nothing and my husband agreed to drop by the next day. But on Sunday night, Chris's father called. Chris and his sister had been, my sister, had been found dead in their home. They died on the Friday. The challenge is, and I know that Katrina was visited several times during that week by her caregivers, mm. but the challenge is, is that she's living in a place that the temperature was never able to return below a level where her own body temperature could drop. Mm. So similar to Bill in his high rise, my sister and Chris were also trapped in a house and couldn't get cool. Yeah. So no amount of visitors is actually going to change that body chemistry. Mm. Mm. So really it has to be in a better housing situation or taken off to a motel for a week or something like that? I think it does. And as I say further in the article, that um, at the funeral, a couple of the social workers mentioned that they had cool respite facilities established and that the information was on the internet. My sister's never owned a mobile phone. They don't have a computer. And people with paranoia are not readily able to go and hang out with a whole bunch of strangers in a foreign place, even if there's a promise of being cool. Mm. In in the uh, older person's high-rise building where I met Bill McKenzie, he told me that in the previous heat waves they'd used the downstairs area to house people overnight when it was really hot and they'd put on air conditioning or something down there. So thanks very much to Greg Foister and Maggie Barron for being so giving. You know, we really loved having them in the studio telling us about that about Greg's research into into heat waves and Maggie's personal experience. So these are the sort of things stories we're trying to bring you, listeners. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Radiothon, and we're trying to raise money for 3CR to bring you those stories every week. So how's the tally going, Jane? Well, it's creeping up very slowly, Vivian. <laughs> we're now uh, we're we're now at five hundred and seventy-eight. Oh, dollars. Terrific. That's good. So we. Just just got to get to that 600 mark. Break that 600 mark <laughs> oh, tonight no, would be great. I'm more ambitious than that. We're trying yeah. for 1,800. <laughs> so, listeners, please, you can give money tonight in the hour between 5 and 6 p.m. tonight, but please give during the week. Uh, you can give yes, online. Well, yeah, Could go you be- to 3cr.org.au and there's a, uh, a link to the Radiothon and that'll take you through to a payment method online if you wish. Or at any time, you can call 9419... Eight three double seven, and listen to one of our fabulous volunteers who are uh, staffing the phones tonight. We've got Annie staffing the phones for us, and another gentleman whose name I didn't catch on the way in. But so we've got two people there to take your phone calls, listeners. And can I just remind you that Australia has one of the most concentrated media landscapes in the world. Three uh, CR breaks that mould. It's it's community voices. It's local stories. It's people who are out in the world. They're active participants in the world, and they're bringing you stories uh, relevant to that. So our broadcasters are Indigenous freedom fighters, unionists, uh, disability activists, they're east-west tunnel picketers and, of course, environmentalists like the intrepid Vivian Mm. and myself. Uh, And I just on a personal note, Vivian, can I put in that I've only been with the show for, what are we in now? We're in June, probably just under 12 months. And in the time that I've been here, I think we've covered an extraordinary range of stories. And you have, um, why I say intrepid is you have managed to get on the show in one form or another, (laughs) a whole host of people. Um, 
people like activists, artists, I've got a little bit of a list here, if you excuse me reading it out, economists, journalists, authors, researchers, intellectuals, um, who are nowadays I see fashionably called thought leaders. We've had people from most political persuasions on the show. We've had someone in my time from the National Party. I don't know that we've ever had anyone from the Liberal Party. We, in have. My time. we have. Greg Hunt. We had ah, Greg, Greg Hunt. Hunt. Greg Hunt. Yes. Yes, the Environment Minister, no less. My mm. mistake. We've had farmers, comedians like Rod Quantock, unionists, um, Pacific Island climate warriors. We've had people of religious persuasions, mm. no less. Oh, they're a big deal in climate change. The, the religious faith response to climate change is really profound and they, they are actually quite quietly leading in the community in their way. Mm. I think the church, was it the Church of England a couple of months ago that divested They're divesting as well. and they and not to mention environmentalists. So, I mean, this is an extraordinary range of uh, people talking to an extraordinary depth on environmental issues and climate change solutions. So, uh, so why not donate? Those are all yeah. the reasons why one should. And you just need call 94198377. You don't have to give the money tonight. You don't have to give credit card details to uh, Annie on the phone. Just a pledge would be more than more than adequate at and this point. we don't really think you have to give big donations. Some people have generously given big donations tonight. But, you know, 10 or $20 all adds up and we'd love to know that that many people support us. Well, Jane said I'm intrepid and I've had great fun making this program. It takes me to coal mines and last yesterday I was in the Warburton Forest, you know, stomping around in the mud and uh, interviewing people. So it takes me all over the place. And now I'd like to go to East Timor because I was there. We went to East Timor and Stephen mentioned Timor just before and um, we'll have a... Two shows next, uh, the two next Mondays will be mm. about land use in Timor and carbon sequestration there. But meanwhile, I just had this little five minute interview. I'd love you to hear it. We went to the famous Biro Pite Clinic in Dili. It's a really, you know, quite, I have to say, quite shabby sort of modest building. But they see 300 people a day, doctors there, and the famous Dr. Dan Murphy was working there. He was even working there under the Indonesian occupation. He's been there for over 30 years. And Dan Murphy took time between two uh, patients to speak to us. So here's five minutes of Dr. Dan, and honestly, he gives a blast to Australia. So listen in. I'm at the Biro Pite Clinic, and here is the famous Dr. Dan Murphy. Hello. Welcome to the program, Dan. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. I'm very pleased to meet you. Tell us a little bit about your work and just give us a climate change take on it. I know you're probably thinking <laughs> more about the really local medical no, really. issues, but well, the bigger picture. True. We see women every day that from the age of three or four on, they are in a room with an open fire. Yeah, so they're breathing that. smoke all so the time. So that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, environment is not conducive to good lung health. And then we have the highest TB rate of Southeast Asia. And so you throw in TB and then their lungs are filled with smoke and you run into a lot of problems. Uh, the environment, we see a lot of people uh, throw things inappropriately. And uh, luckily we don't have such a large population, large population and they don't produce a lot of waste. But otherwise, we'd have problems there, too, because no one does the right things with anything. So we have a long way to go. We have uh, some large generators that were bought from China, and they use heavy oil. And uh, the heavy oil also does not 
stay within the Kyoto Accords, which we're signatory of. Mm. Well, I don't dare ask anyone from Timor would they leave all their oil under the sea because Australia is not leaving all its coal and gas under the ground. Well, what you know. We should be leading, but I don't expect Timor to lead well, on that. Here, here's what you know and that a lot of people don't, and that is that $50 billion worth of resources from the Timorese side of the underground oil has been taken by Australia. $50 billion worth. And you're one of the richest countries ever. When, when I go to Melbourne, I am shocked at how sophisticated everything is and how nice it is and how wealthy everyone is. And yet, you find it appropriate to take $50 billion worth of resources from one of the poorest countries in this part of the world. It makes one wonder. Well, it's a crime. <laughs> well... You know, the, the world is not set up to deal with the inequity between those that have and those that don't. And that is what causes a lot of the problems on Earth. Mm -hmm. And until we can address that, people are going to be aggressive. They're going to try to get their share. They're going to try to get their kids a little bit better life. Mm -hmm. And what it leads to is political and uh, other problems. We've got these desperate Rohingya people just floating around in their own waste and no one will take them and there are a million of those over there nowhere to go so East Timor luckily Jose Ramos Horta came out and said why shouldn't East Timor take its share and that was a little bit refreshing you know why shouldn't everyone take their share and better yet why don't we make it a priority to have the world be a little bit better place so people can stay in their own area so we have a lot of work to do here, we're focused on the suffering that comes with bad health. And uh, we work very hard. We're, we're having some impact, but we could do much, much more. And I always throw this in, but should we have more resources, we know exactly what to do with them. <laughs> well, you've got a chance here to speak to the Melbourne audience and later to the podcast audience. You know, what do you need? And in terms of this maternal health, nutrition, you know, better conditions no, for people to be healthy. To me, it's not rocket science. <laughs> the answer to East Timor's problems, not just health, but other problems, is empowerment of women. I'm sorry, women are serious about life. They've been working since they were three years old. Men are off playing. They don't understand how serious things are. Women, hard, they know what hard work is from morning until night, and they are the ones that take responsibility. And to the extent that we can empower women and get them involved at all different levels of every kind of uh, endeavor in East Timor, we have a chance. Mm. Oh, well, I agree. A message to Australia? Yeah, Australia, be open to learning about your uh, interrelationship with East Timor mm. and what it's been historically and what it is now and, and try to make it better. You know, Australia would like to think that they are among the most educated, the most civilized, the most generous, the most friendly people anywhere. Okay, let's put that into practice. It can't just be something that you say and give lip service to. Mm -hmm. Put it into practice with East Timor. Mm. <laughs> it well, could make a difference. We're here for the um, awards, you know, the Order of Timor Awards, and yesterday the president, you know, embraced all of these Australians and people from all over the world, Japan and lots of countries were here, Portugal, journalists Indonesia. and so on, Indonesia even. And I interviewed a few of them, and some of them were just in tears. And I said, why are you crying after the interview? And they said, because so many people died here. You know, it well, was such a big suffering to get this independence. Now let's still get behind making it work. Individually, I think Australians are very generous and, and caring. Uh, 
sometimes the spotlight is taken off of East Timor and people forget. Yeah. Uh, but 1999, it was, it was, everyone was thinking about it. Um, governments, on the other hand, it seems like they cannot do things appropriately. We don't have good leadership. And that's not just Australia, pretty much in general. And the priority of humans and uh, human dignity and human rights doesn't get much attention at all. Mm. So we have problems everywhere. Okay. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Dan Hi. Murphy in Barrow Pite Clinic in Dili. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 94198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on what's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. (laughs) This is the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Please donate to help keep 3CR going. Uh, 3CR gives us great help and we bring you the who's who of climate action. I go out and Jane and we all go into meetings and record people who are the movers and shakers in climate action. We have a grand total now, Jane, of how much? 598. Ah, nearly up to 600. Please, someone send us $2. But really, we need much more than that. We need to get up to $1,800. So please, you all you have to do is phone this number, 94198377. And if you're not near the phone or you don't want to phone in, well, you can do it online. And mm-hmm. Jane, what's the online? So it's just the www.3cr.org.au and then follow the Radiothon uh, link, which is, should be at the top of the, the first page, the okay. home page. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess the wider context, Vivian, is not just our show, the Beyond Zero Emissions show on a Monday night, but it's also 3CR itself, which requires money from somewhere. It certainly doesn't get it from government funding. It doesn't turn a profit. It doesn't have commercial advertising. 3CR needs about $220,000 a year to stay on air and Mm. uh, what a valuable resource 3CR is. Mm, I think it's cheap. (laughs) If that's all it costs, you know, imagine how much the ABC costs or any of the radio (laughs) programs. But just think of what Dr Dan Murphy said about Australia's guilt about Mm. the Timor oil. You won't hear that on the Murdoch media. You won't read that there and you won't hear it probably on most radio stations. They won't go there and we have no, no restraints on us to to bring you that sort of interview. So please support us just this once once a year radiothon. That's right, once a year. Mm. We really appreciate the money and also the encouragement when you do ring in or when we see your name on a list. It's really wonderful. A lot of people do like to uh, send money online nowadays. So just to know that there are people out there gives us encouragement. The next short grab is from two 
great activists, David Spratt, who wrote uh, Climate Code Red with Philip Sutton quite a few years ago now, but he never stops David Spratt. He's a climate catalyst, I think, a community catalyst. But also Ellen Sandell, who is a Member of Parliament. She's a young Greens person who just won in the recent uh, Victorian election, and they are having a, quite a big campaign to close down and replace Hazelwood Power Station with green jobs and more m- projects that are sensitive to the community down there. They are challenging challenging the idea that we can burn any more carbon at all. So no new power stations and close down the ones we've got as quickly as possible. We've got renewable energy coming in fairly quickly. So let's hear listen to David and Ellen. Um, David, look, your recent work has been um, challenging the carbon budget idea. And I like the way you are, so I call you a community catalyst because just as we've all got used to the idea that there's a carbon budget and, okay, we work within that, you start saying, no, that, that's not going to work. So you're challenging that, the idea that we can go on burning fossil fuel at all. And you quoted Ken Caldera from Stanford University and he said there are no such things as allowable CO2 emissions. Could you speak to that, please? Yes, I mean, this was sort of popularised when Bill McKibben wrote an article for Rolling Stone that everybody read, and he said there were three big numbers. One was two degrees, the second was the amount of coal in the ground, and the third was the amount that we could burn, which was only 20% of the amount Mm. that was in the ground. And that has become a general meme, and it's what the the Paris talks at the end of the year. This is the way it's all framed. My concern from the very beginning was, personally speaking, if you give somebody a budget, they think, it. <laughs> they, they think they have a right to spend it. They might even overspend it uh, unless it's a credit card with a limit. So I think it's a dangerous message to say you have got a budget for fossil mm. fuel emissions. It sounds like you have got a right. Mm. A budget is a right to spend. So it is a right to emit more. And I think that is, is, is very poor terminology. Ken Caldera says... Every emission hurts. I mean, it's like the, the quit message that every cigarette does you harm. Mm. I mean, every emission, every tonne, every hundred tonnes has another effect. So I think the framing is wrong. Um, and the idea of a carbon budget is is based on a number of assumptions which simply aren't true. First of all, at the Copenhagen Accord said we should not go above two degrees that is a cap. A cap means you cannot go above it. But now we talk about a target. You can shoot an arrow at the target and miss. So there's a very big difference between a cap, which is an absolute limit, and a target. So now they say, I oh, will have a carbon budget with a 50% chance of reaching, of not going above two degrees. But that, that, those figures could actually go, means that the, the climate change could be between one and three. You're saying, here's our budget for two degrees, but whoop, we missed the target, got to three. I mean, we cannot. We know two's devastating. We can't go for three. So the point that we've been making is you have to have a really low probability of going beyond two. And as soon as you look at the carbon budget figures, and I got this from eminent climate scientists in Australia, as soon as you have a low risk of exceeding two degrees, there's, there's simply no budget left. And then the budget doesn't take into account what are called long-term feedback. So we have climate change, but climate change can actually produce more climate change. We've talked about this before. You get melting in the Arctic, it gets destabilised. Some of the frozen carbon in the Arctic starts to melt. It so climate change produces more climate change. Those figures aren't taken into account. And the IP, IPCC said, if you take the permafrost into account, it reduces your budget by 27%. But in all this talk about a budget, that 
that's not taken into account. So I think we're living in a bit of a fool's paradise. Mm. Okay, well, I'll go back to Ellen. I'll come back to David because David's information is very, you know, it's dense and I'd like him to explain a bit more about it. But... Thanks, thanks for the compliment. <laughs> no, I don't mean you're dense. <laughs> I just mean it's... I understand. It's, I've always found it rather hard to follow it, but it's intensely real and true, I'm sure. <laughs> Ellen, look, Australia's being que- um, questioned now by China, Brazil, France as we go towards Paris. And today, um, ALP um, Minister Mark Butler said, um, or Shadow Minister, he said, Tony Abbott is dishing out billions in taxpayers' money to big polluters. He's ruined Australia's renewable energy and he's removed Australia's legal caps on carbon pollution. Can you see signs that this outside pressure from the world um, as we move towards Paris will will make us sort of change or will have any effect on our politicians? Well, I hope Unfortunately, we had to fade Ellen Sandel out there. Uh, I think she actually said that the international pressure isn't getting through to Tony Abbott, so maybe we're on our own Australians. We have to ourselves uh, influence him or vote him out out. or something. But now I'd like to thank everybody on the team for tonight's show. We're going to have to finish soon. Save Albert Park's coming on in a moment. But thank you very much for supporting our Radiothon effort. the, the, The effort goes on. We've made about a quarter of our target and uh, something like $600 but we really need $1,800 so please do seriously send us some money ring up during office hours mm-hmm. um, during the week 94198377 Loretta will answer the phone or one of the volunteers will answer the phone and they will take down your details and it's quite easy to just vote with your um, donate with your credit card that's right and just to remember that no amount is too small it yep. all adds up yep small donations or you just go online to the 3cr.org.au .org yep and just fill in the form there, I think. It's just a question of donating. You're not donating to Beyond Zero Emissions. We're asking you to donate to the radio station 3CR, which is community radio, as we've been saying in every uh, That's right. We don't get program. any of it. <laughs> no, no. But, uh, but we do get it through the help that 3CR right. gives us. They are a fantastic they team. Are. Volunteers and Great the team. ordinary staff, the paid staff. But, you know, mm, thanks very, very much There's very few of them. That's right. So thank you to our team, the Beyond Zero team, who have helped. There's a lot of people behind the scenes and me and Jane in the studio. So thanks to Jane behind the scenes, Miwa, Roger and Glenn. They get the podcasts onto the Beyond Zero Emissions website so you can listen again later. And thank you also to Annie for taking the phone calls tonight and Michael, who's always very helpful to us. You know, when we have a bit of a panic attack, Michael just calms nerves down and helps us. So thank you very much to those people.